Hello, and welcome to the podcast for East 11th Street Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm Jordan Messer, the pastor of East 11th, and I'm delighted you found our podcast. We hope the content here is an encouragement to you and pray the Lord uses it to bear fruit in your life. If you have questions about anything you hear today or would like to know more about following Jesus, you can find us on Facebook by searching for East 11th Street Baptist. And now, here's today's message. this morning, I'll ask you to open to the letter of 1 John, 1 John chapter 4 in your New Testament, close to the book of Revelation, where we've been studying, uh, but just a little bit before the letter of 1 John. If you're using the Pew Bible, the blue hardback Pew Bible, you'll find this passage on page 1196, page 1196 in the Pew Bible. As we just read about the second coming, uh, we have to live in light of the coming of the Lord Jesus. And we just confessed uh, from the book of Revelation in our scripture reading that the Lord is coming quickly. Uh, When I was a little boy in school, and uh, I kind of feel like this was maybe a little too grown up material for a little elementary school boy, but we learned about this Italian city uh, way back in the year 79 AD, a little town called Pompeii and how a volcano uh, just outside of the town of Pompeii, Mount Vesuvius, one day suddenly uh, erupted. And it was a massive eruption. And you could hear the blast from miles around. Uh, We are still excavating the city of Pompeii, which was buried in ash from the eruption of this volcano. It it released uh, a, a plume of of gas and smoke about 21 miles high in the air. The eruption was so powerful that it was the size of the the, the blast was a hundred thousand times greater than even the atomic bomb. Uh, It it was a massive eruption and it completely uh, leveled the town. Thousands were immediately killed uh, from the blast alone and as I say we're even to this day almost 2,000 years later still unearthing uh, the ancient city of Pompeii and that came upon those people suddenly they were not expecting it now there were clues often before an eruption you can see signs of the mountain shaking there's smoke there's often lava there are signs that an eruption is imminent and when you see the signs you have to take action you have to take precaution because the eruption will come very quickly and by that time it will often be too late. Well friends, we've been considering the coming of the Lord Jesus and even in our regular series through the book of Revelation we've seen the Lord Jesus himself confess, Behold, I am coming quickly. And there are always signs of his coming. And we look at the world around us and we see a sign here. We see something that was foretold here. There are signs of his coming. Uh, The earth is in expectation of the coming of the Lord Jesus. Uh, But just as many on that day in Pompeii were not expecting 
the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, there will be many who, despite the signs, will not be ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus. And when he comes, he will come with salvation for many, but judgment for many more others. I want us to consider this morning that judgment. The wrath of God. The judgment of God. Against sin and against sinners. The wrath of God and His judgment is not a popular notion. But we as Christians believe that the wrath of God, the judgment for sin, deservedly so, was poured out on the Lord Jesus at the cross. There are many ways you can talk about the cross and what happened at the cross. But the one thing that I want to draw your attention to this morning is the removal of the wrath of God. I want you to understand that God's wrath, when we talk about the Lord coming in judgment against sin, that it's different than when you and I feel wrathful or we feel angry. Usually when we think of the word wrath, we think of someone who's hot-tempered, someone who's flying off the handle, that, because that's how we are. But the wrath of God is very different. The wrath of God is the steady, unrelenting antagonism and punishment towards evil in all its forms. And there is nothing that you or I can do to stop the wrath of God from coming upon us any more than someone in the town of Pompeii could stop that volcano erupting. It is coming. And it will come soon. And there's nothing you or I can do in and of ourselves to make things better. But the good news of the cross and the removal of God's wrath there is that Although there's nothing you or I could do, Jesus has done it for us. So I want to look at just this one verse of Scripture. 1 John chapter 4, thinking about this question, what did the cross accomplish? What did the cross accomplish for us? And again, there's many ways to look at it, but I, I just want to focus in on this one aspect with you this morning. This is one of my favorite verses of Scripture. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. Look there with me. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. There is a lot packed into that very small verse. I've used this verse many times when I'm sharing the faith with someone. I love to go to this verse because I feel like it encapsulates so well uh, what happens when we are saved. Why we need salvation. 
and what the cross accomplishes for us. Uh, the word propitiation there, that's kind of a big word. We don't hear it too much in everyday conversation. It simply means this. The satisfaction of God's wrath against my sin by the means of Christ's sacrifice. Propitiation is the satisfaction of God's wrath against my sin by the means of Christ's sacrifice. That God's wrath was satisfied by the death of the Lord Jesus. I want to talk to you here about the need for propitiation. We see that in the beginning part of verse 10. John tells us that we have not loved God. That's really the problem. Uh, that is the fundamental problem with all of us. We do not love God. Now, there are many of us in this room who might say, Brother Jordan, you know, I, I know that I'm a sinner and, and I need to believe in Jesus, but I've always loved God. I mean, I grew up as a little boy, as a little girl, going to church, and, and I loved going to church, and, and I loved God. And is that really true, that, that we don't love God? I love how one Bible teacher put it. He said, when people seek after God and people say they love God, but they aren't Christians or they aren't believers, what we're really seeking are the benefits of God. You see, our human nature, who we are, deep down in our hearts, we don't love God. We love the benefits of God. We love how God makes us feel. We love the benefits that God offers. Peace. Security. Not going to hell. Instead, going to heaven. Uh, we hear about how we can live in freedom and forgiveness. And we love those things. And the problem is that we love those things more than we love God. We want those things apart from God. We don't love God for who He is. In fact... The Bible teaches that we, in and of ourselves, are opposed to God. We are enemies of God because we like to decide what's best for us, what we like to do, who we want to be. And we feel like we are the best ones to make those decisions. So the fundamental human problem is that we don't love God. God. And, and here's a great question to ask yourself. If you could have heaven and all of its splendor and all of its peace and, and all of its beauty, but Jesus would not be there, would you still be happy? That's a great question to ask yourself and really be honest with yourself. If you could have Man, just everything you know is heaven. Everything you ever wanted, but not Jesus. Without Jesus, would you still want it? I think most of us would be tempted to say, hey, sounds pretty nice. Because who we are in our hearts 
our natural inclination, we do not love God. That's why we make substitutes for Him. John has already talked about this in his letter. We follow after other things. He says over in chapter 2 that we chase after the things of the world, the desires of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the, the, the pride of life. We chase after these things rather than we seek God for who He is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And what our sin does, what that, what that chasing after my desires will do to me, it, it does two things. First, it robs God of His glory. It seeks to take the glory that belongs to God as the creator of all of these good things. And it seeks to focus it on me or, or on the things that I'm pursuing. It, it steals the glory of God. It does not honor God. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1. That we become darkened in our hearts. We become reprobate because we do not honor God. We honor the things that He's created, the good things that He has given, more than we honor Him for who He is. And so sin attempts to take glory from God. But here's the other thing about sin. Chasing after desires, the what John has mentioned, the, uh, my fleshly desire, the things that I see and that I want, the things that I covet, or trying to make more of myself, the, the pride of life. The, the thing that's wrong with that is not only does it steal glory from God, but it also kills me. It also corrupts me. It will destroy me. I will collapse in on myself. Under the weight of all these things, it's harmful for me. Sin destroys. Sin promises more than it can deliver. And it will always take you places you never thought you would go. And it will destroy you. And so understand this. God is opposed to anything that steals glory from Him. But, but understand this as well. God is opposed to the things that would harm you because of his love for you because of how he designed you because of how you're made to live for him to love him he must be opposed to that which is harmful for you and so God is opposed to sin and he will come against all that is wrong and all that is evil. And in some ways, I just get this sense that those of us who have grown up in this country, we've known times of peace and prosperity. Uh, we have a certain measure of freedom in this land and, and we have had pretty comfortable lives and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. It, it, it's not surprising that we have trouble dealing with the notion of God's wrath against those who are evil. But you talk to generations of people who've lived under oppression, who have lived with injustice, who have lived lives marked by severe, severe tribulation. And God's wrath isn't as difficult for them to understand because they know 
that judgment is coming and it is deserved against evil. So, we don't love God. And that is the need for propitiation. We are sinners. And because we sin, God must be opposed to us. We must receive the wrath and the judgment of God because of our sin. But I love this verse because it doesn't stop with just the problem. God also demonstrates not only his wrath and his judgment, which is good and right, and it's what we deserve. But I want you to also notice the cause of propitiation. The cause of propitiation. In this is love, not that we have loved God, that's the problem, but here, what is he saying? But he loved us. <clears throat> Never forget the reason God saves his people. He doesn't save you because you're so great and you were worth saving. Brother Jordan, I'm a good person, you know, I, I do good things, I'm a good neighbor, I don't cuss, you know, I don't cheat on my wife, cheat on my husband, I'm a, I'm a good guy, I'm a good gal. That's not the reason God saves you. God doesn't save you because you're a member of this church. Jordan, I've been coming here for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. I've been a long-time member of this church. Or, you know, I grew up in such and such church under Pastor So-and-so. And so, you know, I've been coming to this church for a long time, Brother Jordan. Give my tithe faithfully. Put a lot of money into this church, Brother Jordan. Well, hey, I'm very grateful for your service and your faithful giving. That's not why God saves you. That's not why God looked upon you with grace and mercy. Because he knew you'd have deep pockets. That, that's not why the Lord saved you. Doesn't save you because you earned his favor. You know, you did him a solid. That's not why God saves you. God saves you because he loves you. Because he decided to love you. And it's just that simple. He decided to set his love upon you. And we need to change our mentality here because there's been an imbalance in this teaching. And I think some have it in their minds that, you know, here we are, we're the lost human race. And so Christ came to get us out of where we were to make us lovable so that God would love us. But that's not how the Bible describes it. No, the Bible says that we're the lost human race. We're dead in our sins. There's nothing we can do. We've corrupted ourselves by sin. But God loved us. And that's why he sent his son to save us. He saves us because he loves us. While we were still his enemies... God sent His Son to die for our sins, to redeem us from who we were, and save us. Christ died for us because God loves us. As we're considering Holy Week and uh, Christ is approaching Good Friday, 
we read about intense anguish that the Lord experiences on His way to the cross. But we also know that the Bible teaches this. It was for the joy set before Him that He endured the shame. Not despising it, but embracing it. It was His joy to do so. Why? Well, you have to sort of understand how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit operate. There aren't three different wills going on. There, there are three persons, but, but one essence, one God, three persons. And so what, what the Father does, the, the Son is doing. And what the, the Son is, is deciding, the, the Spirit is deciding. And so because of the Father's great love, we can be assured of, of Christ's great love for us. And so it was for his joy that he might redeem his people from sin. God loved us enough to take action on our behalf. And here's the good news. You want a really simple way to remember the good news of the gospel? The reason it's good news for you? Again, there's more things you can say about the gospel. There's beautiful aspects of the gospel but do you want to know what makes it really good for you and is a simple way to remember it jesus in my place that's the good news of the gospel for you jesus in my place in my place condemned he stood taking upon himself the wrath of God that my sin deserved Jesus in your place and this great love of God that he has for his people has an effect and that's the third thing I want you to see we've talked about the need for this propitiation again the satisfaction of God's wrath we've talked about the cause of it God loves us simply because he decided to love us because he's God and he can decide that and so he decided to love you and send his son because he loves you. And this great love has an effect. And so because of that, he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Without the truth of substitution, Jesus in my place, substitutionary atonement. Again, those are big church words, but that's all it means. Substitutionary atonement, Jesus in my place. He died for me. Without substitution, we have no salvation. It was His Son for our sins. What an amazing Savior we have. This doctrine of propitiation, it has Old Testament roots. That shouldn't surprise you by now. But what John is talking about here with using this word propitiation, it has an Old Testament uh, connotation to it. His original readers would have read this verse and had thought back to the time uh, of the, the wilderness wanderings, the time of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Two things happened on the Day of Atonement. Two aspects to this idea of propitiation. I don't want you to be put off by these words. There's the idea of, of propitiation in which God's wrath is, is coming against sin and it has to be satisfied by a sacrifice. And so you can think of propitiation 
in a vertical sense. That our sins are dealt with vertically. That God's wrath is, is coming down and it's, it's, it's looking for the blood sacrifice. If you're thinking in Old Testament terms. And when it sees the sacrifice, it is satisfied. But something else happened on the Day of Atonement. Not just the sacrifice of propitiation. But also the sacrifice of expiation. When sins were expiated, EX, they were put out of the camp. And what happened in, in this ritual was that you would have the sacrificial lamb. But you would also have what's called the scapegoat. And the priest would come on the Day of Atonement. Confess the sins of the people by laying his hands on this goat. Confessing the sin and ceremonially, sort of symbolically placing the sins of the people on the goat. And they would then send the goat outside the camp as a way of saying our sins are removed. And that goat will now be sacrificed by the desert. It's just out of the camp and our sins are removed outside the camp. And we see in the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus a picture of these two ideas coming together. That He is the propitiation, that God's wrath is satisfied, but we're also told by the Gospel writers that the Lord Jesus was taken outside of the city to be crucified. I want you to understand as we're approaching Good Friday, as the Lord Jesus is walking through the temple, walking through the city of Jerusalem, teaching. He is approaching this moment of propitiation and expiation. We read about how his trial was false. It was weighted against him. The witnesses contradicted one another. None came to his defense. Still, he remained silent. He was falsely accused and falsely condemned. I think the expectation was from Pilate that he commanded Jesus to be beaten, to be flogged. I think Pilate was probably secretly wishing Jesus would have just died from that because you see, when you handed a criminal over to be flogged, many did not survive past that point. They were whipped mercilessly. The whip that was used, we call it a, a cat of nine tails. It's, it's this band of leather straps with pieces of metal and, and jagged glass and ceramic that would be attached to these leather straps. And they would repeatedly strike the criminal with these lashes. And they were so practiced at this that many would be brought just to the brink of death. The, the metal would bruise the skin and, and the glass would then rip the flesh. And many believe that by the time Jesus was done being flogged, he would have already been partially disemboweled because it exposes you. And then 
After that, the beam would have been laid upon his back, the 150-pound solid wooden beam that he would then have to carry outside the city to the hill where they would then nail him to it. Again, the Romans were very practiced at this. When they nailed someone to a cross, they knew exactly the right pressure point, the right nerve to strike so that it would inflict the most pain. So they nailed him to the cross. And then when you're up there, I know you've probably seen in passion plays that you go to see at whatever church, there's usually a covering over Jesus. But that's not how it was in real life. In real life, you were totally exposed, completely naked, hanging in front of anyone who was passing by. It was shameful. It was very public. And crucifixion is particularly difficult because what happens is not so much you're bleeding out, though you are. What happens is after the flogging you've experienced, uh, being impaled here, fluid begins to build up in your lungs and you begin to drown in your own fluid. And that's why they would often break their legs so that they could not push themselves up to gather a breath. But the point of the cross is this. Don't feel sorry for Jesus. It was for his joy that he took the shame. It was for his joy that he bore the wrath. The point of the cross is not to feel sorry for Jesus. It's to feel sorry for your sin. To see him there as the sacrifice of God for your sin, for my sin, for anyone who would turn from that sin and place their faith in Him to be forgiven, to be saved, to receive God's love because He loves us. I love the verse that follows in verse 10. Look there at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This kind of self-giving love has an effect. And we have an opportunity this morning as we gather around the table of the Lord to remember His broken body and His spilled blood. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads just for a moment. Bow your heads, close your eyes just for a moment as we approach the Lord's table together.